You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. Using Reason to Cultivate Passion, a moral and psychological how-to guide by Gina Gorlin. Thank you, everyone, for coming. So when I first read Ayn Rand's novels at age 15, 16, what inspired me the most perhaps also intimidated me the most, was just how passionately the characters live their lives, how deeply things matter to them, and how much meaning and purpose and emotional fulfillment they seem to reap from the days and hours and minutes of their life. For example, just to take one example out of many, this is a description of Dagny Taggart For those who, raise your hand if you've read Atlas Shrugged. Okay, so we're safe. So this is Dagny Taggart on the first run of the John Galt line, describing her experience. She felt the sweep of an emotion which she could not contain, as of something bursting upward. She turned to the door of the motor units. She threw threw it open to a screaming jet of sound and escaped into the pounding of the engine's heart. She had wanted to see them because the sense of triumph within her was bound to them, to her love for them, to the reason of the life work she had chosen. So let me ask just by a show of hands, how many of you would like to be able to feel this kind of emotion in response to your chosen life work? Okay, yeah, me too. Pretty sweet. And here, is a description again of Dagny. This is now when she's 16 years old, after her first time sleeping with her first love, Francisco Dinconia. Quote, when she came home, when she lay in bed naked because her body had become an unfamiliar possession, too precious for the touch of a nightgown. Her last thought was of the times when she had wanted to express but found no way to do it, an instant's knowledge of a feeling greater than happiness, the feeling of one's blessing upon the whole of the earth, the feeling of being in love with the fact that one exists and in this kind of world. She thought that the act she had learned was the way one expressed it. So I won't ask for a show of hands on this one. I'm just gonna assume that most of us find this a pretty appealing uh, description and maybe are even a little jealous, you know, would like to cultivate whatever it is that allows Dagny to feel this way. And much of my personal and professional life in the 15 or so years since first reading these passages has been dedicated to cultivating and understanding this kind of passion, both in myself and in the therapy clients that I work with. So I'd like to share with you guys today some of what I've learned so far. First, though, before getting to the practical stuff, I want to provide a bit of a philosophical framework for thinking about what passion even is and uh, where it comes from, as informed by Ayn Rand's philosophical context. So obviously when we talk about passion, we're talking about emotions of some kind. And in particular, you know, we're not just talking about your blase, kind of round of the mill, you know, feeling 
satiated from hunger after a meal or feeling itchy, you know, or kind of like content, right, at the end of the day. We're talking about powerful, strong, undiluted emotion flowing from some kind of a powerful place, from love, from dedication to something that you see as great. So since it's a type of emotion, you know, we should start by getting a definition of emotion, which according to Ayn Rand, in this case also in agreement with most modern cognitive behavioral theory and practice, emotions are psychosomatic or mind and body responses based on our automatized value judgments. So by a value judgment, we mean an implicit view of whether something is good or bad for us, roughly speaking. And so to the extent that we've absorbed some kind of implicit view of whether our work is good or bad for us, or whether sex is good or bad for us, our emotions will tend to reflect this view, whether or not we consciously agree with it. And what this also means is that to the extent that we've absorbed a bunch of contradictory views or haven't really developed a strong view on the subject, now, either way, our emotions will tend to be muddled or muted accordingly. So, so far we know that to have strong, undiluted emotions, we need to have well-developed views of what's good or bad for us. We need to have them internalized and automatized on a subconscious level, in addition to you know, believing them consciously. And we need to have them not contradict each other, right? Now, the quintessential example of a passionate emotion within the objectivist corpus is happiness, which, as you probably know, you know, was what Rand considered to be the moral purpose of our life as human beings. She defined happiness as a state of non-contradictory joy, which proceeds from the achievement of our values. This emotional state, according to Rand, is the psychological reward and concomitant of pursuing rational goals that sustain our life. And just as there's no upper bound on the ambitiousness of our goal pursuits, so there's no upper bound on the depth and intensity of the joy and the passion that we can experience in response to those goal pursuits. In fact, for Rand, this emotional experience of undiluted, kind of value-based joy in the achievement of our values is, for us, psychologically, the way that we experience our life is worth living. And it's what makes us fully alive in a human sense of the term. So it's pretty important for us and for our healthy function as human beings. You'll notice passion is slightly broader a concept than happiness and could include any number of strong undiluted emotions proceeding from our values. Not only joy, but excitement, anticipation, hope, and even pain, you know, fear, sadness, anger, to the extent that our values are being threatened or taken away from us, right? But I think this broader capacity to feel strongly and deeply toward the things that we care about and dedicate ourselves fervently to those things is what gives us the motivation to go after our values and achieve our happiness to begin with. So you can't really have one without the other. 
And in fact, psychologically, we now know that you can't really selectively narrow the bandwidth on how strongly you feel sadness, anger, fear, anxiety, guilt, when the world presents itself you know, to you with threats to your values or losses of things that you really deeply care about while still expecting to feel exultant, profound joy. You can't really have one without the other, it turns out. So this is sort of like the psychological aspect or version of the proverb that Rand sometimes quoted to sum up the essence of her moral philosophy. Namely, God said, take what you want and pay for it. In other words, you should pursue whatever is going to make you happy as long as you are willing to do what it takes to get it. And I think this includes both the physical action you know, and the cost of enacting it in the world and also the potential emotional costs of putting yourself at risk of greater losses and being willing to experience more vulnerability, greater uncertainty, for the sake of greater and loftier values that mean more to you. So to the extent that you take this principle seriously and really internalize it, the only question that you ever have to answer for yourself in order to decide whether a given value is worth pursuing is literally just, is it worth it? You know, do I want it badly enough to pay whatever is the cost of attaining it? Of course, this requires a lot of psychological and rational work to figure out, okay, what do I actually want and what is the cost? And then, is this worth it? Right, so the rest of the talk and the subsequent workshop, I'm going to be presenting a lot of more specialized psychological tools and strategies that are designed to help us with this task of figuring out what we want and what it's gonna require to pay for it, particularly from the perspective of our emotional health and having a healthy functioning emotional mechanism, and therefore feeling a lot of passion along the way. So, to give you an overview of the strategies themselves that I'm going to be covering, mind you here that I'm using the word cultivate deliberately because I think it captures the right relationship between you, the conscious agent who's doing the cultivating, and your emotional self, which is the product of a lot of nurturance and care and automatization over time. So first, I'll introduce some psychological tools for consciously identifying your subconscious value judgments and bringing reason to bear on them. And then, based on the work of identifying and bringing reason to bear on our values, identifying the activities, broadly speaking, that we seem to really value and enjoy which I think is an important intermediary step to then setting passion-worthy goals that put us in contact with those activities and have them add up to something worth being passionate about, and then acting on those goals, very importantly. And finally, I'm gonna touch on some strategies for actually experiencing and fully enjoying and savoring the fruits of all that psychological and existential work. So to proceed, 
step one, as I mentioned, is to consciously identify and um, then bring reason to bear on our subconscious value judgments. So why is this so important? Well, you know, as we saw earlier, our subconscious value judgments are what determines how we feel moment to moment throughout our life. And so this is a crucial step to cultivating passion because if we don't know what our subconscious value judgments are, which it's really hard to know, and we'll find it's actually a pretty complex investigative process to find out, you know, then we can't really go about the task of correcting them, checking them against reality, and ultimately choosing consciously what values we actually want to pursue going forward. And it's important for them not to contradict, right, and to be strong and coherent, and this tends to be near impossible if we don't actually do the work of consciously figuring out what's already in there. Okay, so as a reminder, a value is that which we act to gain and or keep, right? So importantly, it's something we act on, right? It's not just something we idly contemplate. So the data for figuring out what we subconsciously value is gonna have to come from actually interacting with the world and not just sitting by and thinking about it, right? Just like to figure out if you love someone, you have to actually interact and spend time with them, right? It's not enough just to abstractly consider them from afar. So our main data sources for introspecting and identifying our emotions, the thoughts, and the value judgments that are associated with them is gonna come from various types of action. In particular, both productive activity, focused on kind of future-based goals, as well as restful and celebratory activity, both of which, as we'll see, are crucial. So, as you go about this activity, it's very important, it's vital, in fact, that you pay attention to the particulars of what you're doing and who you're with and what's happening around you. You'll notice Dagny did not experience the exultant joy that we read about in those first two passages by sitting and contemplating abstractly what a noble, productive achievement the John Galtline was, or what a rational and independent young man Francisco was, right? In fact, the first thing she responded to were the perceptual experiences of connecting to the screaming jet of sound and the pounding heart of the motor in the first scene. And with the feel of Francisco's skin on her skin in the second scene, before she even had a full conscious grasp of why these sensations mattered to her and what they meant for her abstract values. So it may seem obvious, right, we should attend to the particulars and the concrete world around us, but this is actually much harder than it sounds. Right? Just consider, if you don't believe me, the last couple meals that you had, presumably here at Ocon, and see how well you can remember the taste, the smell, the texture, how the taste changed when you first bit in to that piece of food, you know, how it interacted with the other flavors of you know, the other things on your plate. How vividly can you guys remember, just, you know, maybe from lunch or breakfast? You know, raise your hand if you can vividly remember all those things. All right, we got a pretty mindful bunch, but maybe like 
a few fewer hands going up you know, than for some of the other questions, right? So if you don't remember those things, and I know I vary, and I've been practicing mindful attending to particulars for years, and sometimes I'll still shovel food you know, into my mouth in a hurry without actually noticing you know, what I'm even eating or how it tastes. And to the extent that we do, we probably don't have very strong feelings toward our food, right? Because you don't really feel strongly for something you're not concretely noticing and paying attention to. Unlike this kid here, who I think is passionately absorbed in her strawberry. <coughs> Excuse me. So fortunately, we have a lot of well-developed mindfulness tools and strategies available to help us hone our purposeful attention to particulars. We're going to work on this together in the workshop for those who are able to attend afterward, but I'm also happy to provide further references to anyone who's interested. Importantly, as you pay attention to the particulars around you, you can also start to notice and label the particular aspects of your internal experience including your emotional reactions. And this is a process that I'm going to spend probably the most time on today out of anything we talk about, because it turns out to be really complex and really hard. And I think it's less likely you guys are going to learn it elsewhere, especially from this philosophical framework kind of added to a lot of the insights from cognitive behavioral therapy and clinical psychology that I've picked up over the years. Okay, so, so bear with me and we're gonna see if we can really get to know the process a little bit and then you guys can apply it to your life. So a few ground rules, okay? Really the only rule here is to be honest with yourself, okay? Not because you owe it to me or because it's some kind of a duty, but just because it's in your selfish interest to accurately identify and get to know your current emotional landscape so that then you can make informed decisions about what's gonna be best for you, right? And so see if you can let go of any secrets you might be keeping from yourself, no matter how scary or threatening they may seem. Similarly, see if you can notice and then let go of any expectations about how you're supposed to feel. This is supposed to be an exercise in what you actually feel. Right? We're being detectives here, not what you'd like to feel. And it's important to remember here that emotions are effects, not causes, which means that if you're feeling a certain emotion, the underlying value judgment is already there. And you have no control over the fact that it's there right now, any more than you have control over the past and the fact that it's happened the way that it did. So trying to doctor or, or somehow mute or turn down your current emotions is a little bit like tampering with evidence, right? Or, you know, using my garden metaphor here that I'm loving so much, it's a little bit like if you don't like the look of one of your flowers in the garden that you're growing, so you just throw tarp over the whole thing so you don't have to look at it, right? Not only are you then leaving whatever the problem is, right, unidentified, but you're also probably going to kind of choke off whatever life was already growing there. Right, so let's try not to do that. So with that said, some important prerequisites in place here, let's look at this chart here, which I've put together based on 
a lot of accumulated experience in helping people introspect their emotions. And let's go through some examples to actually see what this process might look like, depending on who you are and what situation you're in. Okay, and so you'll notice, you know, this is a pretty structured chart. In life, you might actually benefit from using a chart like this, or you might want to just you know, jot down notes for yourself on a piece of paper. You'll find the more you practice this, the more second nature the process will become, so that you can also just do it in your head. But sometimes it can be useful to structure it, so you don't forget anything. Okay, so let's imagine that we are in college, and we, the semester is just getting started and we're taking a class that we need for our major and we get back our first grade on our first paper and say we worked pretty hard on it, we think we did really well, but actually we did much worse than expected. And so now we walk back to our you know, apartment and we look through the professor's comments and we notice we're feeling a lot of emotions and they're kind of all mixed and conflicted and we're not sure what to do. The ad drop deadline hasn't passed yet, so technically, you know, it's not too late. You know, so we're not sure what to do about this class right now or this paper, right? So let's imagine some ways that our introspection could turn out. So when you ask yourself, First and foremost, just, okay, what am I feeling? Can I name the feelings just as accurately as possible? Perhaps in our first scenario, going down the row here, you find that you feel some fear, looking at this you know, unexpectedly bad grade, and notice you're also marking down the intensity of each feeling, perhaps noticing how much there's a lump in your throat or how tight you feel in your chest to kind of guide your rating, right? You feel some frustration, and you also feel kind of ashamed. Now, you might ask yourself, okay, what are the thoughts, what are the judgments, the interpretations I'm making of this situation that are making me feel this way? Why am I scared? What am I scared of, right? Why am I frustrated? What am I ashamed for? When you ask yourself this, you might find that you're having a thought like this, or maybe lots of them. Oh, what the hell is wrong with me? I should have done better on this paper. Oh, I'm such a loser. Right? And you might also ask yourself, in addition to the content, so you can see, okay, so I'm the one being evaluated here, and it's a negative evaluation, safe to say, right? But you might also note the tone, the attitude with which this internal dialogue is presenting itself to your mind. And maybe ask yourself how friendly or how hostile is it? Also, how sincere and on the level versus uh, is it sort of trying to pull something over on you? And how optimistic or pessimistic is it? How guarded and defensive versus how open? Well, in this case, it's probably safe to say it's a pretty hostile tone, right? Pretty pessimistic. I like to call this the drill sergeant or for those who remember the Chinese tiger mother tone. And well, is it sincere? I guess to the extent that a drill sergeant or a tiger mother is sincere, right? Maybe they've partly convinced themselves of the harsh you know, criticisms and the negative judgments that they shout at you. But they also probably tend to exaggerate the negatives a bit and kind of deliberately play up what they think is bad about you to try to get you to behave, right? In the way that they think you should. So maybe your own inner drill sergeant is doing something similar. It's kind of trying to manipulate you in some way. 
you might also ask yourself about this or any emotion that you're feeling. Okay, so where is this emotion pulling me? Is it pulling me towards something that I want, that I desire and hope to get? Or is it pulling me mainly away from some painful experience or something that I'm fearing or just don't want to deal with? And from experience with the drill sergeant voice, I can surmise that more likely than not, though you'd need to introspect this for yourself, but probably there's kind of this tight, braced, uh, wanting to get away quality to this feeling. Not wanting to feel like a failure, not wanting to deal with this really uncomfortable guilt of feeling like you're in trouble with that inner critic. And as for specific action urge, also really important to identify, because emotions, you know, they're not just there as these idle, kind of good and bad feelings, they're also kind of telling you to do something or not do something. And in this case, it probably makes you sort of want to make edits, you know, to get a better grade, mostly though probably so you don't get in trouble, right? So that you don't have to be a failure anymore. So you'll probably sit down and you'll try to study a bit or you'll try to address the comments, but in this kind of reluctant getting it over with way, right? Where mostly, you know, it's not out of the joy or the interest in the subject, it's sort of like, oh, fine, right? So just by a show of hands, if you're willing to confess to us bravely. How many of you guys kind of recognize this voice, generally speaking, from your own inner dialogue? Okay, thank you guys for being honest. Me too. Like, this is a really familiar voice, so I know it so well, right? And I think probably a lot of us are going to be prone to this one in particular, because we are people who take morality seriously, who take ideas seriously, and we really want to do right and be good. And I think that also makes us more prone to this particular type of underlying premise that can eat away at us. So in this case, if we get really ambitious and we try to trace back this attitude, this tone, this type of judgment to its underlying philosophical roots, it seems like as far as the standard of value goes, well, it's not really you, right? It's not your happiness, it's not what you want, what you need. You know, why should you be able to do this, right? And what the hell's wrong with you? Well, by what standard? It seems like there's just this duty of some kind to achieve, to get good grades, to be a good student, whatever it is, that's kind of bearing down on you as this external arbiter of whether you're good or not. And it's worth watching for that, because it can present itself in lots of different forms. On the other hand, maybe you feel a different set of emotions. So start over, different scenario, same scenario rather, different internal landscape. Okay, So maybe instead of feeling scared, frustrated, and ashamed of yourself, you're feeling angry and resentful. You're mad at this professor, that jerk. He's being unfair. This is way too harsh for an intro class. Clearly, he's being unreasonable, or, you know, or maybe like he obviously just didn't understand my really fantastic rational argument. I don't know. Maybe he's just, you know, one of those altruists and he just doesn't get it, right? Ah, oh, woe is me. Perhaps when you ask yourself, okay, what's the tone here? You notice a little bit of the like kind of petulant child quality to it, 
Or maybe not, you know, it could be these thoughts are perfectly compatible with a more honest and kind of objective thought process, right? You could be right if you go on to then examine the evidence and it matches your initial impression. But alternatively, perhaps you find there's some of this kind of spoiled, entitled, self-indulgent quality to your inner voice. Is it sincere? Well, not quite. It's like it's trying to get away with something. And it's not letting you fully see you know, both sides of the story, right? Kind of, it doesn't, it's like rushing you along so you don't pause too long on, oh, well, but maybe he had a point with this comment, right? So what's likely to be the motive, the direction it's pulling you? Toward something or away from something? Does anybody have a guess? What do you guys think? Is this more of like a value-based towards something emotion or is this more of like a uh, getting away from something emotion? Okay. So, and mind you, it doesn't have to be either or, right? Sometimes there are going to be elements of both embedded in there. But in this case, I think, yeah, what's more dominant is this avoidance of having to deal with the effort, the strain of having to fix it. You didn't know it was going to be this hard. You didn't know that you were going to have to make all these corrections. And, and it's unpleasant to have to think about why the professor disagrees with you. And eh, it's just a lot of work and uncertainty. Like, you don't know if you'll figure it out or, you know, if you'll end up being completely just out of left field and what you wrote and then you have to start over. Like, oh, what a mess. So the action urge, correspondingly, right, is probably they're just to drop the class. Oh, no, bad professor. Don't want to deal with it or at least procrastinate for as long as possible on getting started with the paper corrections or you know, studying for the next assignment or whatever the case may be. And now again, if you introspect all the way kind of back to, okay, so if I were to trace the logical conclusion of kind of this thinking in terms of what it says about how the world works, you know, where would it lead me? Well, there seems to be a bit of like a wish fulfillment thing happening, right? There's a bit of a, well, this should be easy, like it should just fall in my lap. If I wish hard enough, it will be so. Like a tantruming child a little bit, right? And a still different scenario, which I won't go through in as much detail, but maybe you can glance and just see, is this something you identify with or not? You could be feeling kind of this annoyed and, and hesitant but helpless feeling. And it's in parentheses here, just like afraid is in parentheses above, because you might not notice that one right away. That one might be kind of buried underneath the other feelings, and it might take some introspection to pull it up, right? But, but maybe you're thinking that oh, this is yet another one of those irrational people in the world who have to be appeased because otherwise they're going to bear down on me and make my life awful. Right? If he gives me a bad grade, I can't graduate and I can't get the job of my dreams and like, just the, he has too much power over me. I'm sure his standards are arbitrary, no. And maybe you really believe this, or at least believe it to some extent, but what are you going to do? You know, to the extent that he thinks your paper's bad, you're going to have to do whatever he thinks you have to do to fix it. This is a type of what Ayn Rand called malevolent universe premise that involves kind of viewing irrational or bad people as having a lot of power over you and then being guarded and, and defensive with your values accordingly. Okay, 
think Dominique is like the noblest version of this for those who've read The Fountainhead. So these are some different ways it could go. And notice that for a given person at a given time, like you could be having more than one of these. Right? They could be sort of competing in your mind at once. They could be conflicted and, and you could kind of be wavering back and forth between these perspectives. And by the way, most of even the most rational, noble, healthy people out there sometimes have thoughts or feelings along these lines that if traced back to their logical conclusions would have similar implications you know, for the metaphysical views or value judgments that they would hold if they actually consistently thought that. And that's okay because we don't control what automatized thoughts or feelings get triggered, tripped up in our minds at any given moment. But what we do control is whether we do something like this, right? Whether we consciously identify and do this work of tracing back to its roots, whatever it is we're feeling, so that then we can bring our conscious knowledge and our full context to bear on most importantly, what we actually want to do, right? As well as what we believe about the situation, both of which obviously matter. Okay, so let's talk about then how we would go about that, bringing reason to bear on whatever mix of emotional uh, contents and, and tone and attitude and motive we discovered by doing that exercise. So this could also go a couple different ways, right? So now let's say we, for the most part, you know, I think my, the audience here will have bought in at least consciously to the idea that being selfish is good or anyway, you know, pursuing your own happiness is a good thing. There aren't these arbitrary duties hanging over our heads. And reason is good. Reality is what it is. You can't change it by wishing hard enough. And by and large, we live in a benevolent universe in the sense that if we do the work of achieving our values and setting rational goals, moving toward them, that we're not gonna tend to encounter disaster and that irrational evil people don't really have any more power over us than we give them, ultimately. So supposing we believe that, let's see if we can reassert it in our current psychological landscape. Primarily, or firstly, through the tone that we use with ourselves. Okay, so whether we notice that we are prone to that hostile, really nasty kind of punishing tone or that self-indulgent, petulant child tone, once we notice that, we can catch it and see if we can switch, just experiment with switching to more of a friendly but also objective and honest and optimistic and open tone. So talking to ourselves more in the way that we might talk to a valued friend to whom we're giving counsel, or even you know, to a child or a family member that we love, if we're not trying to be Chinese tiger mothers, that is, right? Versus the way we would talk to our worst enemy, or the way we would talk if we were a spoiled child of five, right? So what might that look like? So now that we've adopted this new tone, let's try to apply it to actually figuring out what's true in this situation. And in particular, checking whatever our mind initially kind of jumped to as a default interpretation of this bad feedback and bad grade that you got. So it may be what we find when we apply ourselves to actually examining the evidence is that, well, 
The professor did warn us that the first paper would be hard and that we would have opportunities to improve our grade over the course of the semester. Also, I gotta admit, today's lecture was really interesting. And I actually enjoyed it a lot. You know, maybe the professor has a kind of wry, sarcastic sense of humor that really appeals to me. And it was kind of fun. And I also really admire you know, his intellect and the way that he makes connections. Also, these comments kind of make sense. And now that I think about it, I could really improve my paper by incorporating some of this. Actually, yeah, this is really interesting. I'm learning something just by reading his comments. Huh, okay. So given that that's the case, importantly now, okay, so what are you feeling? Having done that, having adopted this healthier, kind of friendlier, less defensive tone with yourself and let yourself notice the full context of evidence in front of you. Maybe now that you've also noticed you know, what's interesting about the comments and you started to think about how you could move the paper forward and the research project you know, that you based it on and you're starting to get kind of curious and kind of excited at the prospect of improving your paper and maybe talking more with the professor about the topic. Now you're also kind of nervous because you don't know how this is going to work out. Maybe a little intimidated because oh, he's really smart and I'm realizing I don't understand this nearly as well as I thought I did. But also excited. So now you're in a position to take all this data, the emotional data, informed by the actual factual data of what's happening in this situation, and do your conscious inventory. Take what you want and pay for it, right? So what are the values that I stand to gain here, or let's say by staying in the class, and what are the costs? In this case, it sounds like you have a lot to gain, right? Perhaps you really are interested in this topic, let's say just because I know it well that it's a psychology research class, and you're actually getting really interested in this uh, research area that you wrote your paper on and starting to think about you know, what else you could learn by continuing to improve upon it. You also really value your writing. And maybe as you continue to introspect, you also realize, oh, okay, the reason I maybe got so defensive and felt so bad when I first saw this bad feedback is because it was a threat to something I actually really care about, which is what a good writer I am. Huh, yeah, I really care about my writing. You know, maybe that's not the healthiest reaction, because the point is I want to actually write well, not just pretend like I write well, but this is telling me something about my values. Like, I really, I love being able to articulate my thoughts in writing, and I want to get better at it, right? So that's a really cool opportunity. Maybe you also notice that you just, you're starting to get excited about the challenge. You like a good challenge. You're like, yeah, okay, bring it on, professor. Maybe I can do this. Now that it's starting to seem a little more plausible to you that maybe you could still improve, right? And you also kind of like this professor. The more you think about, huh, his lecture is really interesting. His comments are pretty spot on. I want to get to know him. Maybe do some research in his lab. You know, maybe benefit from collaborating with him someday. And, of course, there's also a practical means to an end kind of value from taking this class, which is you get credit toward your major. And to the extent that you're majoring in psychology and, you know, this is your experience so far, maybe it's a good major for you to stick with because so far you seem pretty interested in it. The costs, definitely there are some costs, right? It's going to 
take a lot of time and energy, more than you might have thought initially. And you don't know for sure if you'll be able to improve your grade, right? So there's some risk involved. And I'm sure there'll be more frustration to come, right? Because these are going to be difficult prompts, and you're not always going to get it right, and you're not always going to agree with the professor. But when you weigh the value against the cost here, chances are it's going to come out for you in favor of sticking it out. Yeah, this seems worth it. Now I'm really curious. I got to see what happens. And I want to get to know this guy. So maybe you stay, and then you actually apply some further you know, conscious, rational thought to addressing some of the challenges, some of the struggle you've encountered so far by going to office hours, by talking to the professor about methodology for you know, breaking down the paper, for you know, maybe there are ways that you can, maybe he can send you a template, maybe you're just not that good at writing a research paper, kind of figure out, okay, what's the problem so you can better break it down and address it. And so now you've learned a lot about your values, and you've made an informed values-based decision about what to do. It doesn't have to go that way, right? We could imagine a different scenario. Perhaps when we start to look at the evidence, we find instead, still taking our friendly, objective, sincere, optimistic attitude, we kind of survey the landscape and we find ourselves thinking, well, I didn't expect it to be this hard. It's not very interesting to me. And I could be working on that really cool coding project instead that I've been working on with my friend. I'm really excited to see it to fruition. And this is kind of boring. And I don't even honestly know that I'm that interested in psychology. I took the class because I thought it would be an easy A. And now it's turning out to be all this work. This is kind of a drag. What emotions are you likely to feel? Probably some frustration, some disappointment, because you had your hopes up that this would be an easy one. Maybe some guilt, in this case, because you're kind of realizing you had an ulterior motive in taking the class. You weren't really that interested in the topic. Like, you thought, well, I'm supposed to take classes in things that people get jobs in and whatever that are safe and practical, so I should take this, I don't know why psychology would be your idea of a practical you know, major, but in any case, you know, you had some rationalization in your head, so you took the class. And now you're realizing, ugh, I actually have to really work at this, and I don't know that I want to, because I'd rather work on that really cool app, and I want to try to roll it out and try to get some angel investors to pay attention to it. So here again, you're learning something about your values by going through this process. What value can you gain from the class? Well, in this very simplified scenario that I deliberately made kind of extreme, right? Eh, very little. When you actually look at your own first-handed enjoyment or specific goals that you've outlined for which this is actually going to be helpful. Costs? Pretty substantial because there's something you could be doing instead that you actually really want and really care about. Even if there are other voices in your head telling you, you know, it's not safe, it's not going to go anywhere, don't get above yourself, lad or laddie, right? But you really want to, and you actually see it maybe going somewhere. So in this case, maybe you'll drop the class and in instead spend that same time actually coding and trying to fundraise for this new app that you're developing with your friend and try to get a startup going. 
maybe even drop out of school on further consideration, though hopefully not you know, just based on this one experience. That's a big decision. You want to really weigh your pros and cons. So, but you can see how differently those two scenarios worked out, right? Both completely consistent with a pro-self, pro-reason, and benevolent universe set of core value judgments, right? A worldview in which your happiness is your standard of value and you respect that reality is a certain way and that you can't just wish for it and have it come. You have to take what you want and pay for it. Interestingly, just by doing that exercise on this one scenario, we've gotten a lot of clues about what we value in these two different cases, right? So this is a little compass that I sometimes use with my therapy clients, usually close to the beginning of therapy, when we're trying to identify what core values or kind of what general types of activity do they find rewarding, such that then we can set goals that are going to be consistent with and kind of move them in the direction of these valued activities. So. In this case, look at everything that we've gleaned. At least you know, we have clues to these things. In one case, you know, seems like you're interested in studying psychology. In the other case, you really like writing code, and especially you know, novel, inventive code that maybe gets around some current problem. And you know, additionally, you're actually really interested in thinking and writing about scholarly research more generally. Or in the other case, maybe creating and marketing a new product or new technology. You also notice some other things about your general style and your preferences that are more general in one case, but still kind of distinctive to you. You have this strong preference for doing things that challenge you, or you're kind of irreverent and you'd rather do the off-kilter, outside-the-box, slightly rebellious thing than go with the flow or kind of follow the mold. And more specific, right? You enjoy a certain kind of wry humor that you appreciate in your professor in the one case. Or maybe in the second case, you realize, you know what? I just really like to work in solitude. I like to just be in my bubble, not have anybody talking to me or distracting me. I just want to be able to work on my code. And this is something I really enjoy about working on code. So we learn a lot by doing this gives us a lot of bang for our buck. But obviously it's not all the work, right? So having identified some activities that we generally enjoy, now we're in a better position to set goals that are congruent with you know, getting to do a lot of those activities and also are going to add up to some really worthwhile long-term mission pursuit that we can get really excited about, right? Because the point is to be passionate and to really do things we care deeply about. Now, I can tell you a few things about the kinds of goals that are going to bring us the most passion. And I'm not going to be getting into like all the kind of practical advice that you might get from a productivity guru and that you, I think you'll be getting a lot of other expertise during this conference. There's a lot to know about the skill of setting goals and organizing your time and managing all the different pieces you know, that come with different careers and so on. But just psychologically speaking, the more ambitious the goal, the more will be at stake, the more you'll have to gain, the more passionately you will feel toward it, as long as you believe it's truly achievable. 
Again, it's important to be honest with ourselves, right? But also, the more you're gonna risk failing, making mistakes, the more uncertainty there's gonna be, and probably the more times you're gonna fall and get hurt in some way. So if you decide, you know what, I really believe in this new app, and I'm gonna market it on Silicon Valley, I'm gonna go for it. I'm gonna take a chance, I'm gonna drop out of school, and I am gonna see how far I can go. You're probably gonna care very deeply and strongly about what happens with your app. Versus if you say, well, I'll just shop it around to my friends and leave it at that, right? But again, less comfortable, more to lose, and more potential pain. So take what you want and pay for it. Again, winds up being very relevant here. Relatedly, if you really want passion, if you wanna do things that you're gonna care deeply and strongly about, then you wanna learn to welcome that nervous feeling that comes with moving toward things you really care about. If you wanna ask out that girl that you really like but you don't know if she likes you back, or if you wanna apply for that really awesome sounding and super competitive internship, yeah, you're gonna be nervous, right? There'd be something wrong if you weren't. Either you wouldn't actually want it as much as you think, or you're not really letting yourself fully commit to it. And that could actually hurt your chances. So the most important overarching approach here is as you pursue the different activities that bring you enjoyment, that feel, you know, satisfying and productive, try to put them together so that they add up to something. So if you do like writing code, but maybe you also kind of like doing research or learning about psychology, well, you could put those together in all kinds of creative ways, right? You could actually create an app that helps researchers like me gather data throughout people's days on how their mood is changing, right? Or all kinds of other fun challenges involving the field of your research psychology. Think about how to put them together because the wider and the more unified all the different things that you're doing throughout the day, the week, the year, the more strongly you're gonna feel toward each of them individually because you know they're adding up to some grander pursuit over the long term. And very importantly here, once you do decide you wanna do something, once you do all that introspective work and then you set a goal that makes sense to you and you know the costs are worth it, do it, see it through. Even if your emotions are still chiming in with the same old, same old duty premise and drill sergeant voice and malevolent universe nonsense telling you, no, 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 you're gonna fail, don't, don't do it, play it safe. If you know what it is that you're hearing, let it play but stick with it. Stick with what you've already consciously decided, despite the fact that those hangers-on haven't quite gotten trained up yet. Because it turns out, just like action is where we learn about our existing value judgments, action turns out to also be the training ground for our emotional landscape over time. And so, just like a screaming child who's really scared of the dark, or really scared of the monster under the bed, you know, for those parents in here, what's the best way to help a child get over a fear of monsters under the bed? Look under the bed. Now that's a horrible, awful thing to do if you're the child, because you think there's a monster and it's gonna eat you. But as the loving parent, you kind of already know the answer, and you want to help your kid along. So you lovingly take their hand and 
you just you kind of help them dip down a little bit and you look under there quickly and oh okay there's no monster but maybe there's still going to be a monster next time or maybe he was hiding so you do it again and again and gradually your kid forgets all about the monster and kind of gets the idea <laughs> turns out even as grown-ups our emotions function very similarly. So if you've got your malevolent universe voice telling you, no, 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 they're gonna, they're gonna fail you, they're gonna fire you, and you won't be able to find another job, and all the people everywhere will turn on you, well, you know, the more you actually go and interact with people and try stuff and notice that, generally speaking, people are pretty nice to you, or if they're really irrational and bad, you just go find some better people and that you don't die, your emotions will eventually get the picture. So remember that your emotions aren't the cause of your actions. You are. And once you remember that, then you don't have to be as intimidated by them. And you can do the conscious work of helping them along to actually learn and flow more consistently with your consciously endorsed knowledge and values. Okay, so finally I want to quickly note some strategies which we're going to go into a lot more depth with in the workshop. But it's important now that you've done all this work of getting clearer on what your values are and pursuing them with dedication, being willing to fall and get up again, you want to be able to enjoy it. And it turns out that's a whole skill set in and of itself. So. During productive activity, you're focused on achieving goals over the long term, doing things that will add up to something more. During your rest and recreation activities, you're looking to celebrate. You're looking to refuel, recharge, and to remember what it is you're actually in it for. Why all the productive work? And what's the end goal? What is it all adding up to for you? So, it's important in order for it to serve that function that you pick hobbies and you know, movies and TV shows and books and people who actually reflect to you your values. And think about what you like about them and, and why. Right? I love the show How I Met Your Mother. I don't know about you know, how many of you guys out there, yeah, share my sentiments, but I think you could like it for different reasons. You know, I like it in part because I love the kind of affectionate repartee between the characters and how close they actually get, how well they understand each other, and how much they care about each other's futures. But I'm a psychologist, of course I care about those things, right? We all have different slants on the world, and it's important that we find and surround ourselves with the activities and the art, the reminders, that are going to make salient for us what makes our life so passionately worth living. Likewise, tune into the little moments, the things that you might otherwise miss, or you don't see necessarily how they're important to living passionately, but you know, the conversation with the Uber driver where he kind of casually mentions that his son recently graduated from high school and how proud he was because he didn't think his son would ever do it. Or the kid in the grocery store who is having a tantrum and then sees an interesting looking fruit display and completely forgets her misery and is just super enthralled. And like, notice what you feel about that. Let yourself be moved by it. Again, if you find that it's hard for you to feel things toward these situations that seem like they should be happy and exciting, experiment with noticing situations where maybe your subconscious is trying to spare you from one of these, from a vulnerable emotion, 
which often goes hand in hand with wanting something badly, with being really excited, with this potential for strong, undiluted emotional catharsis. Practice moving toward them, right? So if you're kind of embarrassed to ask a question because you know it might actually reveal your ignorance, but you also really want to know the answer, ask it. If you want to pay someone a genuine compliment, but you're not sure if they can reciprocate, pay them the compliment. Look for those opportunities and jump in and see how it goes. And finally, just surround yourself with your values. Now that you know much more clearly having done all that work, what are the particulars that you respond strongly to? And here I got permission from Dr. Greg Salmieri, who might or might not be in this room right now, but he did sanction this. Thank you. <laughs> there he is. I found him. And Dr. Karen Salmieri, who I'm sure also gives her tacit permission uh, to share with you guys. So I have the good fortune of spending Christmas over the last few years at Shea Salmieri. And one of the reasons I really love and look forward to this occasion is because of all the little ways that the Salmieri's decorate their tree, their house, their life with all things Salmieri. It's really unmistakably their house, their Christmas tree. So I don't know if you can see, but this is a tiny little miniature rendition of the companion to Ayn Rand that Greg, Dr. Salmieri, co-edited with Dr. Alan Gotthelf. It's a tiny little ornament. And in the back there, you can see Aristotle, a very stern-looking uh, you know, bust, a portrait of a bust of Aristotle, but with his traditional Christmas Santa hat on. And it just goes on and on. Like, the whole house is like this. Thank God. <laughs> and I think it's just a nice example of really personalizing, stylizing your life so that everywhere you look, you see things that matter to you, things you care about, things that get your emotions going and get them flowing in that strong, undiluted way. And I'm just going to leave this up as a final example rather than you know, try to convince you guys that, yeah, it's worth it. It's worth all those costs that I mentioned to passionately go in the direction of your most ambitious goals and values. I'll just leave you with an example from Francisco here. At the moment of what Dagny realizes to be his greatest achievement when he resists punching back and murdering Reardon after Reardon slaps him in the face, Francisco has just discovered that Reardon is with Dagny, and Francisco has confessed that she's the one woman he's ever loved, and then he gets slapped, and he's still frothing with blood at the corner of his mouth, and yet he has this look of an enraptured dedication, which is almost a smile, as he remembers so vividly here the reasons why it's worth it to him to pay even this price for the sake of his values. Something to aspire to, I think. So thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.